Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. Thanks to everyone who entered our Smile and Pearl contests over the last couple of weeks. Hopefully some of you will start your holiday season with a few more chills. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, we also have a couple of signed copies of the Dark Matter Inc. anthology, Human Monsters, to give away. I'll be posting the details about that in the next couple of days on our social media, so stay tuned to our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for that. Special thanks goes out this week to Nathan Loff, our newest patron to step beyond the veil and join us in the darkness. Thank you so much for heeding the call, Nathan. It makes our black hearts glow with gratitude. Thanks also to Amanda Carrillo for stepping up as a top supporter. I truly cannot express how thankful we are, Amanda. As I mentioned last week, we are on a quest to get 1% of listener support. We're currently around half of that, and while donations of ethically harvested internal organs are a sweet gesture, Joining us on Patreon is even better, and a whole lot less messy. Patreon.com slash 
Tales to Terrify. Even a single dollar a month makes a world of difference. And with three or more bucks, you can enjoy every episode completely ad-free. So, if you're in the giving mood, tis the season after all, head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify. Speaking of giving, I think it's time we give you some chills. Let's dive into our fiction. Our first story for the evening comes from Mariska Pichette. Mariska Pichette writes about monsters, magic, and what mysteries lurk in the Massachusetts woods. More of her work appears in audio on Pseudopod, the No Sleep Podcast, and Alternative Stories Podcast. She has work in print in Strange Horizons, Fireside Magazine, Apparition Lit, and Uncharted Magazine, among others. You can find her on Twitter as at Mariska Pichette. Children of the Night, join me for Mariska Pichette's Dreaming War, first published in the summer 2020 issue of From Whispers to Roars. We were wolves once. I walk across the fields that abut the mountain's feet, feeling the hardness of the ground where my ancestors once hunted with claws and teeth. But winter separates that age from ours, the time of fur and packs as distant as the Shawnbacks' territory, far to the south. My harvest for the day is strapped to my back, a basket of potatoes coated in coal-black soil, smelling still strongly of the earth. Tonight the moon is like a cat's pupil, its slivered black gaze watching from above, iris pocked and white. As I near our village, I drop onto all fours, quickening my pace, heading for the light of the fires. Our village grows from the mountains at its back, rocks tumbling down into the caves and pillars carved with stories that glow when the moon finds them. In the light of the night, wolves dance, wolves hunt. And we do not dance anymore, and we do not hunt. Looking at the pillars reaching up into the end, I wonder, and not for the first time, what it was like to live before the winter that spanned a millennium. A winter that changed us from what we once were into something more and less. I trot past our village gate and into the fire's warmth. In the soft blue light emanating from the pillars, I see grandmother sitting with my brothers near the center of the village. I drop my basket onto the hard-packed soil and it leans coming to rest against the base of one of the pillars. Black soil colors the gray-blue ground like storm clouds over a twilight sky. Grandmother looks up as I approach. She is balding, the hair that was once thick retreating from her limbs in shreds of gray and white. I enter the ring of light that holds her along with my two brothers, Maez and Horsh. Grandmother pauses in the story she was telling before I arrived and waits until I am crouching beside them. Smoke in my nose, smothering all of the scents. Grandmother tells us of our ancestors. We grew from pups. Our teeth were longer, sharper, honed each time we tracked a prey to its end. 
Grandmother spreads her arms, skin hanging diaphanous from her thin frame. Her eyes glitter yellow in the firelight. Our ancestors knew every track in the dust, she says. Every pebble on the lake shore. Grandmother pauses, and I think about how we have changed. I can smell better than a Shornback, and run faster too. But the purity of what we once were has been lost to time. There is no longer a lake between our civilization and the Shornback's territory in the south. While our ancestors prowled around the black waters, there is now a trench of black soil. Not even potatoes can grow there. And on the other side, Shornbacks. My gaze wanders to the pillars shining around us, along with the once hunt they depict that the war be- came before the winter. Bulls not chasing, but being chased across the stone pursued by Shornbacks bearing axes, wearing wolf skins. The outcome of the war was never decided. Instead, the world shook, cracked open and filled the sky with smoke as black as soil. And the winter came. We fled to the mountains and learned to live on fungus instead of meat. Over the centuries, our bodies changed. Siku, grandmother says, her voice the sound of wind and grass. I pull my gaze from the pillar and look into her wrinkled face. You are thinking about the winter's end, she murmurs. I nod and look down at my feet. Not so different from a Schoenbeck's. When their winter ended and our people emerged, they thought the Schoenbeck's would not have survived the long winter. But they did. Grandmother nods. She tilts her snout to the moon. And so the war continues. Grandmother stands, her body moving smoothly despite her age. She lopes away, leaving us circled around the dying fire, exchanging looks that say nothing. I turn my eyes to the moon. Ama is the name mother gave to the moon. It has always captured me, the slit that grows and grows, but never fills. Ama swings between brightness, a black disc, the center of its pendulum path. On one end, it fills until it is a hair away from total revelation. On the other, it is a sliver of light pushed to the edge of a shadow world. I have never seen it fill all the way. We sleep when the moon completes itself, when the spirits rise, when the wolves come back to hunt. Tonight is the apex, the night before Ama completes its cycle. I rub my arms, flattening the hairs that stand on end in the cold. A restlessness chews at me as I stand and follow my brothers to our cave. For the first time, I feel a strong urge to run away from the village, away from the mountains. I want to run all the way across the miles of open land that separate our civilization from the Schoenbecks. And at the end of the journey, what will I find? I pause at the cave mouth and turn back to the night. Tomorrow, the ancestors continue the war that no winter, no death can stop. Siku! Maze calls from inside our cave. Come inside. The blessing will not come if you are out here all night. The blessing. My stomach flutters. It has been a month since we last tasted meat. Tomorrow's feast brings me back from the edge, and I turn away from the fires and retreat into the darkness to sleep. But I do not sleep for long. After what feels like only a minute, my eyes open. While my brothers are resting, I roll onto all fours and run. Down the mountain's foot, skirting the edge of the village, cloaked in the smoke of dying fires, the pillars gleaming blue beacons in the dark. I run past them, my shadow leading me south. I run faster than I've ever run, ignoring the scrapes of rocks on my hands, the scrabbling of my toes each time I slip. As the village fades behind me, I hear them. Howls fill the night, and suddenly I am singing with the ancestors, singing a song of war.
I run, the mountain shrinking behind me, the night cast in the glow of the near full body of the moon. But no, when I look up, Ama is a perfect sphere, a face of bone white and deadly, a mask of war. When I look ahead, my shadow is no longer visible. Wolves made of moonlight run ahead of me, a pack of beauty and determination lighting my way. I do not know how long or how far we ran together before the horizon flares with fire. The ancestors howl and I howl with them, my own voice unfamiliar in the altered world. The fire on the horizon brightens as we enter a territory as different from us as Ama is from the sun. A crack splits across the night. The Shornbacks have seen us coming. Morning, I, I twitch. The echo of a scream cut off as sleep leaves me. Someone is moving nearby, speaking with my brother's voice. I stir and open my eyes to find myself on my mat in my cave. Was it a dream? Siku, get up, Maze calls. It is starting. I roll onto my side, the images from last night flying away from me. I gasp as I try to stand, my legs quivering. I struggle upright, flexing my shoulders and wincing at the way they pull under my skin. If what I experienced was a dream, it afforded me no rest. I walk shakily behind my brothers down to the village. A large fire blazes in the blessing pit, and grandmother is singing, her chin raised, her teeth blunt and bared. I look at her, and then my eyes wander to the struts suspended over the fire, their burdens shining in the sun. At the sight of them, I am not exhilarated as I usually am when this month's blessing comes. Instead, all I hear is dream howling, and my muscles ache. The Shornbacks hang from skinny ankles. Their hairless arms limp and stiff above their heads. The ancestors have gifted us ten of the creatures, their throats emptied of blood, their entrails piled by the fire. Grandmother circles the offering, her claws unsheathed and translucent in the sunshine. The war continues, she chants, her voice dipping in and out of a growl. And our ancestors are victorious. Siku! I jump at my name. Grandmother turns to me, her lips still peeled back. She raises her arms and I mimic her, my shoulders aching with the action. When I look up at my hands, my claws are not translucent, but stained red. Siku! Grandmother calls, her declaration buoyed by the wind. You are now Siku Kali! You have joined the ancestors in dream war, and you have triumphed at their side. The wolves live on inside you. The ancestors run across moonlit grass. Their phantasmal howls echo in my mind. We remember the wolves, and they remember us. That was Mariska Pichette's Dreaming War, as read by Stephen Gagan. Stephen Gagan was born and lives in the town of Winthrop on Boston's North Shore. A graduate of the Citadel, the Military College of South Carolina, he spent the next seven years in the U.S. Navy as a mixed-gas diving and salvage officer. Stephen then joined the family insurance and tax preparation business. In his off time, his passions are sailing, cooking, and diving. He is the author of two books, Bravo 2 Sierra and Code Alpha, both military thrillers. He is also the author of several short stories and is working on his third novel. His two greatest adventures 
are diving on the USS Arizona in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii in 1983 and participating in an expedition down to the RMS Titanic off Newfoundland, Canada in 2001. Stephen is married to his wife Grace and has two children, Kyle and Amanda. Find out more about Stephen at his website, stephenrgagan.com. Thank you, Stephen. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Our second tale tonight is a classic from M.R. James. M.R. James was enthralled with ghosts from a young age, having been inspired and terrified by an old Punch and Judy toy set that included a figure simply called The Ghost. The toy featured in many nightmares that he suffered in his early years. Those early dreams, coupled with a lifelong love of all things antiquarian, fueled James's love of ghost stories. In fact, listening to him spin spectral tales around the fire on Christmas Eve became somewhat of a tradition amongst his peers at Cambridge University. In many ways, James's stories were a step backward in the evolution of the ghost story, at a time when his contemporaries, such as Henry James, were writing ambiguous tales that treated the supernatural with skepticism and ambiguity. Instead, M.R. tended to adopt a less equivocal line in his treatment of the supernatural. When a linen sheet billows in an M.R. James story, there's usually a genuine ghost behind it. Listen with me, children of the night, to M.R. James's Count Magnus, first published in James's collection Ghost Stories of an Antiquary in 1904. 
by what means the papers out of which I have made a connected story came into my hands is the last point which the reader will learn from these pages. But it is necessary to prefix to my extracts from them a statement of the form in which I possess them. They consist, then, partly of a series of collections for a book of travels, such a volume as was a common product of the forties and fifties, Horace Mary's Journal of a Residence in Hutland in the Danish Isles is a fair specimen of the class to which I allude. These books usually treated of some unknown district on the continent. They were illustrated with woodcuts or steel plates. They gave details of hotel accommodation and of means of communication, such as we now expect to find in any well-regulated guidebook, and they dealt largely in reported conversations with intelligent foreigners, racy innkeepers, and garrulous peasants. In a word, they were chatty. Begun with the idea of furnishing material for such a book, my papers as they progressed assumed the character of a record of one single personal experience, and this record was continued up to the very eve, almost, of its termination. The writer was a Mr. Raxel. For my knowledge of him, I have to depend entirely on the evidence his writings afford, and from these I deduce that he was a man past middle age, possessed of some private means, and very much alone in the world. He had, it seems, no settled abode in England, but was a denizen of hotels and boarding houses. It is probable that he entertained the idea of settling down at some future time which never came, and I think it also likely that the Pentechnicon fire in the early seventies must have destroyed a great deal that would have thrown light on his antecedents, for he refers once or twice to property of his that was warehoused at that establishment. It is further apparent that Mr. Raxall had published a book, and that it treated of a holiday he had once taken in Brittany. More than this I cannot say about his work, because a diligent search in bibliographical works has convinced me that it must have appeared either anonymously or under a pseudonym. As to his character, it is not difficult to form some superficial opinion. He must have been an intelligent and cultivated man. It seems that he was near being a fellow of his college at Oxford Brasenos, as I judge from the calendar. His besetting fault was pretty clearly that of over-inquisitiveness, possibly a good fault in a traveler, certainly a fault for which this traveler paid dearly enough in the end. On what proved to be his last expedition, he was plotting another book, Scandinavia, 
a region not widely known to Englishmen forty years ago, had struck him as an interesting field. He must have alighted on some old books of Swedish history or memoirs, and the idea had struck him that there was room for a book descriptive of travel in Sweden, interspersed with episodes from the history of some of the great Swedish families. He procured letters of introduction, therefore, to some persons of quality in Sweden, and set out thither in the early summer of 1863. Of his travels in the north there is no need to speak, nor of his residence of some weeks in Stockholm. I need only mention that some savant residents there put him on the track of an important collection of family papers belonging to the proprietors of an ancient manor house in Vesterhotland, and obtained for him permission to examine them. The manor house, or Ergard, in question is to be called Hreibach, pronounced something like Robeck though that is not its name. It is one of the best buildings of its kind in all the country, and the picture of it in Dallenberg's Swiss Antique Moderna, engraved in 1694, shows it very much as the tourist may see it today. It was built soon after 1600 and is, roughly speaking, very much like an English house of that period, in respect of material, red brick with stone facings and style. The man who built it was a scion of the great house of De La Gardi, and his descendants possess it still. De La Gardi is the name by which I will designate them when mention of them becomes necessary. They received Mr. Raxall with great kindness and courtesy, and pressed him to stay in the house as long as his researches lasted. But, preferring to be independent and mistrusting his powers of conversing in Swedish, he settled himself at the village inn, which turned out quite sufficiently comfortable at any rate during the summer months. This arrangement would entail a short walk daily to and from the manor house of something under a mile. The house itself stood in a park and was protected, we should say grown up, with large old timber. Near it you found the walled garden and then entered a close wood fringing one of the small lakes with which the whole country is pitted. Then came the wall of the domain and you climbed a steep knoll a knob of rock lightly covered with soil, and on the top of this stood the church, fenced in with tall, dark trees. It was a curious building to English eyes. The nave and aisles were low and filled with pews and galleries. In the western gallery stood the handsome old organ, gaily painted and with silver pipes. The ceiling was flat and had been adorned by a seventeenth-century artist with a strange and hideous last judgment, full of lurid flames, falling cities, burning ships, crying souls, and brown and 
smiling demons. Handsome brass coronae hung from the roof. The pulpit was like a doll's house covered with little painted wooden cherubs and saints. A stand with three hourglasses was hinged to the preacher's desk. Such sights as these may be seen in many a church in Sweden now, but what distinguished this one was an addition to the original building. At the eastern end of the north aisle, the builder of the manor house had erected a mausoleum for himself and his family. It was a largish, eight-sided building lighted by a series of oval windows, and it had a domed roof topped by a kind of pumpkin-shaped object rising into a spire, a form in which Swedish architects greatly delighted. The roof was of copper externally and was painted black, while the walls, in common with those of the church, were staringly white. To this mausoleum there was no access from the church. It had a portal and steps of its own on the northern side. Past the churchyard the path to the village goes, and not more than three or four minutes bring you to the inn door. On the first day of his stay at Drobeck, Mr. Raxall found the church door open and made these notes of the interior which I have epitomized. Into the mausoleum, however, he could not make his way. He could, by looking through the keyhole, just descry that there were fine marble effigies and sarcophagi of copper, and a wealth of armorial ornament which made him very anxious to spend some time in investigation. The papers he had come to examine at the manor house proved to be of just the kind he wanted for his book. There were family correspondence, journals, and account books of the earliest owners of the estate, very carefully kept and clearly written, full of amusing and picturesque detail. The first De La Gardi appeared in them as a strong and capable man. Shortly after the building of the mansion, there had been a period of distress in the district, and the peasants had risen and attacked several chateaux and done some damage. The owner of Robeck took a leading part in suppressing trouble, and there was reference to executions of ringleaders and severe punishments inflicted with no sparing hand. The portrait of this Magnus de la Garde was one of the best in the house, and Mr. Raxall studied it with no little interest after his day's work. He gives no detailed description of it, but I gather that the face impressed him rather by its power than by its beauty or goodness. In fact, he writes that Count Magnus was an almost phenomenally ugly man. On this day, Mr. Raxall took his supper with the family and walked back in the late but still bright evening. I must remember, 
he writes, to ask the sexton if he can let me into the mausoleum at the church. He evidently has access to it himself, for I saw him tonight standing on the steps and, as I thought, locking or unlocking the door. I find that early on the following day Mr. Raxall had some conversation with his landlord. His setting it down as such length as he does surprised me at first, but I soon realized that the papers I was reading were, at least in their beginning, the materials for the book he was meditating, and then it was to have been one of those quasi-journalistic productions which admit of the introduction of an admixture of conversational matter. His object, he says, was to find out whether any traditions of Count Magnus de la Gardi lingered on in the senses of that gentleman's activity, and whether the popular estimate of him were favorable or not. He found that the Count was decidedly not a favorite. If his tenants came late to their work on the days which they owed him as lord of the manor, then they were set on the wooden horse, or flogged and branded in the manor-house yard. One or two cases there were of men who had occupied lands which encroached on the lord's domain, and whose houses had been mysteriously burnt on a winter's night, with the whole family inside. But what seemed to dwell on the innkeeper's mind most, for he returned to the subject more than once, was that the Count had been on the black pilgrimage and had brought something or someone back with him. You will naturally inquire as... Mr. Raxall did, what the black pilgrimage may have been. But your curiosity on the point must remain unsatisfied for the time being, just as his did. The landlord was evidently unwilling to give a full answer, or indeed any answer, on the point, and, being called out for the moment, trotted out with obvious alacrity only putting his head out in the door a few minutes afterwards to say that he was called away to Sciara and should not be back till evening. So Mr. Raxall had to go unsatisfied to his day's work at the manor house. The papers on which he was just then engaged soon put his thoughts into another channel, for he had to occupy himself with glancing over the correspondence between Sofia Albertina in Stockholm and her married cousin Ulrika Leonaro at Robach in the years 1705 to 1710. The letters were of exceptional interest from the light they threw upon the culture of that period in Sweden, as anyone can testify who has read the full edition of them in the publications of the Swedish Historical Manuscripts Commission. In the afternoon he had done with these, and after returning the boxes in which they were kept to their places on the shelf, he proceeded, very naturally, to take down some of the volumes nearest to them, in order to determine which of them had best be his principal subject of investigation next day. 
The shelf he had hit upon was occupied mostly by a collection of account books in the writing of the first Count Magnus. But one among them was not an account book, but a book of alchemical and other tracts in another sixteenth-century hand. Not being very familiar with alchemical literature, Mr. Raxel spends much space where he might have spared in setting out the names and the beginnings of various treaties. The Book of the Phoenix, Book of the Thirty Words, Book of the Toad, Book of Miriam, Turba Philosophorum, and so forth. And then he announces with a good deal of circumstance his delight at finding, on a leaf originally left blank near the middle of the book, some writing of Count Magnus himself, headed Liber Nagriae Peregrinationis. It is true that only a few lines were written, but there was quite enough to show that the landlord had that morning been referring to it, a belief at least as old as the time of Count Magnus, and probably shared by him. This is what in the English is what was written. If any man desires to obtain a long life, if he would obtain a faithful messenger and see the blood of his enemies, it is necessary that he should first go into the city of Chorazin and there salute the prince. Here there was an erasure of one word, not very thoroughly done, so that Mr. Raxel felt pretty sure that he was right in reading it as heiress of the air. But there was no more of the text copied, only a line in Latin, Quiere reliquia hujus materiae intersecretiur. See the rest of this matter among the more private things. It could not be denied that this threw a rather lurid light upon the tastes and beliefs of the Count, but to Mr. Raxall, separated from him by nearly three centuries, the thought that he might have added to his general forcefulness alchemy, and to alchemy something like magic, only made him a more picturesque figure, and when, after a rather prolonged contemplation of his picture in the hall, Mr. Raxall set out, on his homeward way, his mind was full of the thought of Count Magnus. He had no eyes for his surroundings, no perception of the evening sense of the woods or the evening light on the lake, and when all of a sudden he pulled up short, he was astonished to find himself already at the gate of the churchyard, and within a few minutes of his dinner, his eyes fell on the mausoleum. Ah, oh, he said, Count Magnus, there you are. I should dearly like to see you. Like many solitary men, he writes, I have a habit of taking to myself aloud, 
and unlike some of the Greek and Latin particles, I do not expect an answer. Certainly, and perhaps fortunately in this case, there was neither a voice nor any that regarded. Only the woman, who I suppose was cleaning up the church, dropped some metallic object on the floor whose clang startled me. Count Magnus, I think, sleeps sound enough. That same evening, the landlord of the inn, who had heard Mr. Vaxall say that he wished to see the clerk or deacon, as he would be called in Sweden, of the parish, introduced him to that official of the inn parlor. A visit to the De La Gardia tomb-house was soon arranged for the next day, and a little general conversation ensued. Mr. Raxall, remembering that one function of Scandinavian deacons is to teach candidates for confirmation, thought he would refresh his own memory on a biblical point. "'Can you tell me,' he said, "'anything about Corizin?' The deacon seemed startled, but readily reminded him how that village had once been denounced. To be sure, said Mr. Raxall, it is, I suppose, quite a ruin now? So I expect, replied the deacon. I have heard some of our old priests say that the Antichrist is to be born there, and there are tales. Oh, what tales are those? Mr. Raxall put in. Tales, I was going to say, which I have forgotten said the deacon, and soon after that he said good night. The landlord was now alone and at Mr. Raxall's mercy, and that inquirer was not inclined to spare him. Er Nielsen, he said, I have found out something about the black pilgrimage. You may as well tell me what you know. What did the Count bring back with him? Swedes are habitually slow, perhaps, in answering, or perhaps the landlord was an exception. I'm not sure, but Mr. Raxall notes that the landlord spent at least one minute in looking at him before he said anything at all. Then he came close up to his guest, and with a good deal of effort, he spoke. Mr. Raxall, I can tell you this one little tale, and no more, not any more. You must not ask anything when I've done. In my grandfather's time, that is, ninety-two years ago, there were two men who said, The Count is dead. We do not care for him. We will go tonight and have a free hunt in his wood the long wood on the hill that you've seen behind Robach. Well, those that heard them say this, they said, No, do not go. We are sure you will meet with persons walking who should not be walking. They should be resting, not walking. These men laughed. There were no forest men to keep the wood because no one wished to live there. The family were not here at the house. These men could do what they wished. 
Very well. They go to the wood that night. My grandfather was sitting here in this room. It was the summer and a light night. With the window open, he could see out to the wood and hear. So he sat there, and two or three men with him, and they listened. At first they hear nothing at all. Then they hear someone. You know how far away it is. They hear someone scream, just as if the most inside part of his soul was twisted out of him. All of them in the room caught hold of each other and they sat so for three quarters of an hour. Then they hear someone else, only about three hundred ales off. They hear him laugh out loud. It was not one of those two men that laughed. And, indeed, they have all of them said that it was not any man at all. After that, they hear a great door shut. Then, when it was just light with the sun, they all went to the priest. They said to him, Father, put on your gown and your ruff and come to bury these men, Anders Bjornsson and Hans Thorbjorn. You understand that they were sure these men were dead. So they went to the wood. My grandfather never forgot this. He said they were all like so many dead men themselves. The priest, too, he was in a white fear. He said when they came to him, I heard one cry in the night, and I heard one laugh afterwards. If I cannot forget that, I shall not be able to sleep again. So they went to the wood and they found these men on the edge of the wood. Hans Thorborn was standing with his back against a tree, and all the time he was pushing with his hands, pushing something away from him, which was not there. So he was not dead. And they led him away and took him to the house at Nyshopping, and he died before the winter. But he went on pushing with his hands. Also Anders Bjornsson was there, but he was dead. And I tell you this about Anders Bjornsson, that he was once a beautiful man. But now his face was not there because the flesh of it was sucked away off the bones. You understand that? My grandfather did not forget that, and they laid him on the bier which they had brought, and they put a cloth over his head, and the priest walked before, and they began to sing the psalm for the dead as well as they could. So as they were singing the end of the first verse, one fell down, who was carrying the head of the bier, and the others looked back, and they saw that the cloth had fallen off, and the eyes of Anders Bjornsson were looking up, because there was nothing to close over them, and this they could not bear. 
Therefore the priest laid the cloth upon him and sent for a spade, and they buried him in that place. The next day, Mr. Raxall records that the deacon called for him soon after his breakfast and took him to the church and mausoleum. He noticed that the key of the latter was hung on a nail just by the pulpit, and it occurred to him that, as the church door seemed to be left unlocked as a rule, it would not be difficult for him to pay a second and more private visit if the monuments were there proved more interest among them than could be digested at first. The building, when he entered it, he found not unimposing. The monuments, mostly large erections of the seventeenth and eighteenth centuries, were dignified if luxuriant, and the epitaphs and heraldry were copious. The central place of the doomed room was occupied by three copper sarcophagi, covered with finely engraved ornament. Two of them had, as is commonly the case in Denmark and Sweden, a large metal crucifix on the lid. The third, that of Count Magnus, as it appeared, had, instead of that, a full-length effigy engraved upon it, and round the edge were several bands of similar ornament representing various scenes. One was a battle, with cannon belching out smoke and walled towns and troops of pikemen. Another showed an execution. In a third, among trees, was a man running at full speed, with flying hair and outstretched hands. After him followed a strange form. It would be hard to say whether the artist had intended it for a man, as was unable to give the requisite similitude, or whether it was intentionally made as monstrous as it looked. In the view of the skill with which the rest of the drawing was done, Mr. Raxel felt inclined to adopt the latter idea. The figure was unduly short, and was for the most part muffled in a hooded garment which swept the ground. The only part of the form which projected from that shelter was not shaped like any hand or arm. Mr. Raxall compares it to the tentacle of a devilfish, and continues, On seeing this I said to myself, this, then, which is evidently an allegorical representation of some kind, a fiend pursuing a hunted soul, may be of the origin of the story of Count Magnus and his mysterious companion. Let us see how much the huntsman is pictured. Doubtless it will be a demon blowing his horn. But, as it turned out, there was no such sensational figure, only the semblance of a cloaked man on a hillock who stood leaning on a stick and watching the hunt with an interest which the engraver had tried to express in his attitude. Mr. Raxel noted the finely worked and massive steel padlocks, three in number, which secured the sarcophagus. One of them, he saw, was detached and lay on the pavement. And then, unwilling to delay the deacon longer or to waste his own working time, he made his way onward to the manor house. It is curious, he notes, how on retracing a familiar path, one's thoughts engross one to the absolute exclusion of surrounding objects. Tonight, for the second time, I had entirely failed to notice where I was going. I had 
planned a private visit to the tomb house to copy the epitaphs, when I suddenly, as it were, awoke to consciousness and found myself, as before, turning in at the churchyard gate and, I believe, singing or chanting some such words as, Are you awake, Count Magnus? Are you asleep, Count Magnus? And then something more which I have failed to recollect. It seemed to me that I must have been behaving in this nonsensical way for some time. He found the key of the mausoleum where he had expected to find it, and copied the greater part of what he wanted. In fact, he stayed until the light began to fail him. I must have been wrong, he writes, in saying that one of the padlocks of my count's sarcophagus was unfastened. I see tonight that two are loose. I picked both up and laid them carefully on the window ledge after trying unsuccessfully to close them. The remaining one is still firm, and though I take it to be a spring lock, I cannot guess how it is opened. Had I succeeded in undoing it, I am almost afraid I should have taken the liberty of opening the sarcophagus. It is strange, the interest I feel in the personality of this, I fear, somewhat ferocious and grim, old noble. The day following was, as it turned out, the last of Mr. Raxall's stay at Robeck. He received letters connected with certain investments which made it desirable that he should return to England. His work among the papers was practically done, and traveling was slow. He decided, therefore, to make his farewells, put some finishing touches to his notes, and be off. These finishing touches and farewells, as it turned out, took more time than he had expected. The hospitable family insisted on his staying to dine with them. They dined at three, and it was verging on half-past six before he was outside the iron gates of Robeck. He dwelt on every step of his walk by the lake, determined to saturate himself now that he trod it for the last time, in the sentiment of the place and hour. And when he reached the summit of the churchyard knoll, he lingered for many minutes, gazing at the limitless prospect of woods near and distant, all dark beneath a sky of liquid green. When at last he turned to go, the thought struck him that surely he must bid farewell to Count Magnus, as well as the rest of the De La Gardis. The church was but twenty yards away, and he knew where the key of the mausoleum hung. It was not long before he was standing over the great copper coffin and, as usual, talking to himself aloud. You may have been a bit of a rascal in your time, Magnus, he was saying, but for all that that I should like to see you, or rather, just at that instant, he says, I felt a blow on my foot. Hastily enough, I drew it back and something fell on the pavement with a clash. It was the third, the last of the three padlocks which had fastened the sarcophagus. I stooped to pick it up and heavens is my witness that I am writing only the bare truth. Before I had raised myself, there was a sound of metal hinges creaking, and I distinctly saw the lid shifting upwards. 
I may have behaved like a coward, but I could not for my life stay for one moment. I was outside that dreadful building in less time than I can write, almost as quickly as I could have said the words. And what frightens me yet more, I could not turn the key in the lock. As I sit here in my room noting these facts, I ask myself, it was not twenty minutes ago, whether that noise of creaking metal continued, and I cannot tell whether it did or not. I only know that there was something more that I have written that alarmed me, but whether it was sound or sight, I'm not able to remember. What is this? that I have done. Poor Mr. Rexall. He set out on his journey to England on the next day, as he had planned, and he reached England in safety. And yet, as I gather from his changed hand and inconsequent jottings, a broken man. One of the several small notebooks that have come to me with his papers gives not a key to but a kind of inkling of his experiences. Much of his journey was made by canal boat, and I find not less than six painful attempts to enumerate and describe his fellow passengers. The entries are of this kind. 24. Pastor of village in Skarna, usual black coat and soft black hat. 25. Commercial traveler from Stockholm going to Trollhattan, black cloak, brown hat. 26. Man in long black cloak, broad-leafed hat, very old-fashioned. This entry is lined out in a note added, perhaps identical with number 13, have not yet seen his face. On referring to number 13, I find that he is a Roman priest in a cassock. The net result of the reckoning is always the same. Twenty-eight people appear in the enumeration, one being always a man in a long black cloak and a broad hat, and another a short figure in dark cloak and hood. On the other hand, it is always noted that only twenty-six passengers appear at meals, and that the man in the cloak is perhaps absent, and the short figure is certainly absent. On reaching England, it appears that Mr. Raxall landed at Harwich, and that he resolved at once to put himself out of the reach of some person or persons whom he never specifies, but whom he had evidently come to regard as his pursuers. Accordingly, he took a vehicle. It was a closed fly, not trusting the railway, and drove across country to the village of Belcham St. Paul. It was about nine o'clock in the moonlit August night when he neared the place. He was sitting forward and looking out of the window at the fields and thickets. There was little else to be seen racing past him. Suddenly he came to a crossroad. At the corner, two figures were standing motionless. Both were in dark cloaks. The taller one wore a hat, the shorter a hood. He had no time to see their faces, nor did they make any motion that he could discern. Yet the horse shied violently and broke into a gallop, and Mr. Roxel sank back into his seat 
and something like desperation. He had seen them before. Arrived at Belchamp St. Paul, he was fortunate enough to find a decent furnished lodging, and for the next twenty-four hours he lived, comparatively speaking, in peace. His last notes were written on this day. They are too disjointed and ejaculatory to be given here in full, but the substance of them is clear enough. He is expecting a visit from his pursuers. How or when, he knows not. And his constant cry is, What has he done? And is there no hope? Doctors, he knows, would call him mad. Policemen would laugh at him. The parson is away. What can he do but lock his door and cry to God? People still remember last year at Belcham St. Paul how a strange gentleman came one evening in August years back, and how the next morning but one he was found dead, and there was an inquest, and the jury that viewed the body fainted. Seven of them did, and none of them would speak to what they had seen, and the verdict was visitation of God and how the people as kept the house moved out the same week and went away from that part. But they do not, I think, know of any glimmer of light that has ever been thrown or could be thrown on the mystery. It so happened that last year the little house came into my hands as part of a legacy. It had stood empty since 1863, and there seemed no prospect of letting it. So I had it pulled down, and the papers of which I have given you an abstract were found in a forgotten cupboard under the window in the best bedroom. That was M.R. James's Count Magnus, as read by Scott Phelps. Scott Phelps is a narrator and voiceover artist. When not disturbing your dreams with tales of horror, Scott can be found in Washington, D.C., where he works as a restaurateur. He currently resides in that most haunted of commonwealths, Virginia. Thank you, Scott. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Incredible fans like Amanda Carrillo, Orion D. Hegre, Paul Belcher, Amanda Gottfried, and Kathy Robinson whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter already? Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks like ad-free episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible 
and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Why not share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch? TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs. It's always growing, so check back often. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Meredith Morgenstern, Andrew Gibson, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we chill you to the bone with more Tales to Terrify. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 